Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I think probably the, um, the worst car I ever owned was a Renault 5. I don't know if you remember those. Circa 1980. And um, I just lacked power. It, was, it would kind of run along okay until you needed it to kind of accelerate and go up a hill or overtake. And just you had to work the engine so hard to try and get it to kind of shift along a bit. Eventually, I discovered that it was running on three cylinders. Don't know if you remember that term, but running on three cylinders. So one Christmas holiday, I, I kind of got ensconced myself in the garage with my Hayes manual and uh, stripped the engine down and rebuilt the whole thing, put new piston rings in, new plug leads, the whole gaskets, everything, put it all back together again prayed, <laughs> and, uh, and set out, and it went like a dream. I was so proud of myself, until the next day someone ran into the back of me and wrote off the car. <laughs> That's a different story, but the point is that sometimes, as Christians, we can feel like we're kind of running on three cylinders, can't we? That, that the that we're having to work, that just put a lot of effort in and don't feel as if we're making a lot of progress. And uh, that's what I want to be talking about this morning, how we receive power to live this new life that is ours in Christ. This is week three in our short series, which we're calling Elementary. It's about how we establish a strong foundation in our relationship with God. And we're basing it on Hebrews 6 verses 1 and 2, which says, just to remind you, therefore, <clears throat> let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So week one, we looked at repentance and faith by which we are brought into union with Christ. Uh, last week was baptism in water, which is how we publicly testify to the reality of our union with Christ. Having died with Him, we, in baptism we are buried with Him and then raised with Him to new life. Now this morning we're going to go on to look at how we are empowered to live this new life life that is ours in Christ. The key point is, it's all about the Holy Spirit. We, we receive the Holy Spirit. Our passage in Hebrews, I don't know if you noticed this, it mentions instruction about baptisms and the laying on of hands. That's the bit that I want to talk about this morning. So as well as baptism in water, there is another kind of baptism that we come across in the Bible, Jesus himself, in fact, teaches about it. During the period of about 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension uh, to heaven, Jesus continued to meet with his followers and to teach them. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, where it tells us that on one occasion, when he, when Jesus was eating with them, with his disciples, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. 
as I told you before. For John baptized in water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, as we saw last week, this word baptized simply means immersed or dunked. When you, if you dunk your hobnob in your tea, you are baptizing it. That's what it means. And um, it's easy to picture being immersed when we think about being immersed in water, but what does it look like? What does it mean when it comes to being immersed in the Holy Spirit? Because unlike water, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God who lives eternally in three persons. At the start of this service today, Faith and uh, Sarah reminded us that, uh, that God is holy and he is here. He is present. And uh, the Holy Spirit is the presence of God. Uh, with the Father and the Son, the Nicene Creed tells us he is worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit is often likened to, he's described as the breath of God. He's likened to a wind, fire, oil, streams of water, but it's important that we remember that he's not just a force or an influence. He is a person. You can have fellowship with him. You can grieve him. You can honor him, worship him, be led by him. And it's through him that we receive power to live our new life. In Christ. And this passage that we're looking at, Jesus goes on to say in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, even as far as Achim. In the Greek language, this word power is dunamis, from which we get words like dynamite, dynamo, dynamic. It's about power, strength, ability. It's often used in the Bible in relation to the works of God. And in Acts chapter 2, we read about what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on the followers of Jesus. Here's what it says. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, sometimes depicted as halos. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages, as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. This speaking in other languages or tongues, sometimes referred to, is the Spirit-given ability to speak in a language that you haven't learned and don't understand with your mind. So you couldn't use this to go into a restaurant in a foreign country and order a meal, for example. It doesn't involve the kind of a, you know, sometimes people think it's like a, some kind of trance state that you don't know what you're doing, but the Holy Spirit will never overrule a person's will. 
You remain in control. You can choose whether you speak or not. You are simply cooperating with the Holy Spirit in speaking words that are given or inspired by Him. And in his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul gives quite detailed instructions about the use and abuse of this gift. So clearly, this was an ongoing feature in the, of church life. The, the point is that what happened on the day of Pentecost wasn't just a one-off event. It was the, the, the start, the beginning of a new era. When Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon his church, and we are still living in that era today. Isn't that good? So, here's a question. When do we receive the Holy Spirit? Now listen, there is no reason why people can't come to faith in Jesus and be baptized in the Spirit, receive the Spirit at the same time. We see this happening in Acts chapter 10. That's an amazing incident. Peter is preaching the good news about Jesus to the household of a man named Cornelius. Bit of background, Cornelius was, most of, the, most of the believers in the early church, of course, were Jews. They were Jews who came to put their faith in Christ. And for a while, they didn't quite kind of grasp that actually the good news was intended not just for the Jews, but for everyone, for all the other people as well that they referred to as the Gentiles. Cornelius was a Gentile. So this was a, when Peter went to preach the good news to Cornelius and his household, they were, he and his friends were kind of stepping outside of the box and they weren't quite sure what was going to happen. And what happens is that while Peter is still speaking, before he even gets to the, the end of his sermon and invites them to give their lives to Jesus or whatever they were going to do, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they start just speaking in other languages and praising God. So Peter and his friends think, well, well we better baptize them then, <laughs> you know, this is exactly what God's doing exactly to them, what he's done for us. So they go ahead and baptize them in water. So these believers in Cornelius' household, they get the whole package. They turn from their sins. They put their trust in Jesus. They are baptized in water. They receive the Holy Spirit all in one kind of event. However, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the experience of most people. And Maybe a more common experience is the one that we come across in Acts 19, where Paul comes across a group of disciples, and it's like he senses maybe there's something missing there, and he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they reply, no, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. So Paul prays for them, and in verse 19, verse 6, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they spoke in other languages, in tongues, and prophesied. So, just to be clear about this, the Holy Spirit is involved from the very outset in our experience of coming to faith in Jesus. The Spirit convicts us of sin, the Spirit makes God known to us, He applies the work of Jesus to us personally. He testifies with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. So through the spirit, we are in Christ. 
He is in us. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So the Spirit is involved from the very outset. However, there are lots of us who, who come to faith in Jesus and are born of the Spirit and, and know that God loves us, that we know we're God's children, but at some subsequent time we experience the Spirit coming upon us in a powerful way. Hands up if, if that's been your experience. Yeah? So there we go. That's probably most of us here this morning. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily accurate or helpful to see receiving the Spirit as a, a one-off experience, a static thing. Life in the Spirit begins at conversion at the same time, the experience, its experience dimension is both dynamic and ongoing. Receiving the Spirit is an ongoing reality. And our experience of the ever-present Spirit can be fanned into flame. Can be fanned into flame. So what, what does this look like? In the, um, in the first letter to... His first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul identifies some of the, he calls them the manifestations of the Spirit that were evident when the church gathers together. In chapter 12, he writes, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. And he goes on to tell them, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between Spirits, to another speaking in tongues in different kinds of languages, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one, just as he determines. Now this is probably not an exhaustive list of the ways in which the Spirit works. And elsewhere in the New Testament, you'll find other gifts that are mentioned. The point that I want to make here are two points, really. That these are all the work of the Spirit. It's not, you know, as we were praying about this morning, the phrase that we just sensed God was giving to us for this morning was, no sweat. No sweat. This, you know, the power of the Spirit is not about us striving or trying to, you know, rev up the engine and trying to be dynamic and be inspiring and get things going. It's, it's about just simply responding, receiving and responding to what the Spirit is doing. He's the one who does the heavy lifting. He's the one who is working through us. The second point is that these gifts are not just for the few. This is, this is not just for church leaders or for those in responsibility or for those who, like faith, have reached some level of saintliness and, and have a halo or whatever the case may be. The Spirit gives to each one for the common good. And and the, body, the way that the body of Christ grows and builds itself up in love 
is as each part does its work. As each part kind of contributes um, the work of the Holy Spirit to, to the whole. Now, the, the New Testament leaves us in no doubt that that was the norm in the early church. The early church was a charismatic community, and the Holy Spirit was evident in their life, worship. Paul's letters assume that believers know what he's talking about when he tells them to be filled with the Spirit, or pray in the Spirit, or sing spiritual songs, or put to use their spiritual gifts. Words like filling, drenching, drinking, describe an experience of the Spirit that is both, I think, initiatory and ongoing. And the good news is that the, the same Holy Spirit is still with us and still working today. God's will, I believe, is that every believer is filled with the Spirit and thus empowered to play an effective, essential part in the life and worship of the congregation as a whole. And, and when, the presence, when the presence of the Holy Spirit is made known through the church members exercising the spiritual gifts, these manifestations of the Spirit, then, then the whole life and worship of the congregation is enriched immeasurably. The worship service is no longer the responsibility of a few individuals with the rest of us just kind of looking on. Uh, everyone has a part to play. Everyone is participating in what the Holy Spirit is doing. Uh, by the way, while I'm saying this, Caleb asked me to make it clear this morning that these, you know, these build up things that we're doing in a couple of weeks' time, worship, evangelism, prophecy, the build-up workshops on worship are not aimed at musicians. It's kind of come back, I think, that one or two people have misunderstood that. This is, this is not about honing our musical skills. This is about experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit in our worship gatherings. And if that's something that, that you want to see us grow in as a church, then, then come along on these workshops. You, you definitely don't need to have any musical ability. Uh, Caleb, he's going to be there, and he tells me that he can't sing a note. I don't think that's entirely true, but that's what he claims. So listen, it would be fair to say that the experience of the Spirit as a normal part of church life and worship has kind of waxed and waned over the years, over the centuries, when Pam and I became Christians way back in 1979. Gosh, that seems a long time ago now. It was a time when churches were rediscovering the, the Spirit-filled life, the gifts of the Spirit, the baptism in the Spirit. We first heard someone speak in tongues in a home group that we attended. It had a powerful impact on me. I remember that. Uh, we we received the baptism of the Spirit as part of the foundation course that we attended, that we took part in. Prophecy was a regular part of, of church gatherings. This, this was a time, you may remember if you were around then, when churches began to sing choruses along with the more traditional hymns. 
you might laugh about some of them now. Um, one of, the, one of, the, one of the, the songs I remember that we sang at the time was, you'll remember this one, won't you? Give me oil in my lamp. Oh, so don't worry, we're not going to sing it this morning. <laughs> Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Actually, that exactly describes what we're talking about this morning. The Bible uses oil and lamps as a way of describing being filled with a spirit. We have a picture here of an old-fashioned simple lamp. It's just a container that holds oil with a wick placed in it. Now, when, when you look at the lamp, it might appear that it's the wick that is doing the work, but in truth, it's the oil. It's the oil that is doing the work. Without a steady supply of oil, the wick is useless. It will just burn out very quickly. But when the wick is doing what it should do, when it's immersed in the oil, when it's soaking in the oil, then the wick will burn for hours without being consumed. We heard this morning about Moses and the burning bush. If God just wanted simply to get Moses' attention, he could have had a dancing sheep or a singing rock or something like that. But what he was demonstrating was a picture of the spirit-filled life. The bush burned, it was on flame, but it was not consumed. The Holy Spirit is a fire that doesn't consume us. And in Acts chapter 2, we read that on the day of Pentecost, remember we read that, what appeared to be tongues of fire came to rest on each of the believers. Now, this is probably just me, but I've kind of always pictured them as like little human lamps. You know, they in other words, they began to be what Jesus said they were, the light of the world. Spirit-filled believer is the lamp of the Lord, is the light of the world. This is, this is how they became witnesses. Of, remember Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. We tend to think of witnessing as something that we do but it's first and foremost something that we are. When we are filled with the Spirit, then we demonstrate. We are the light. We are burning with a holy flame. We are demonstrating, witnessing to the truth, the reality of the good news about Jesus, that He is alive, that He has saved us, that the kingdom of God is at work in the world. When Paul tells the church in Ephesus to be filled with the Spirit, He's talking about an ongoing reality. Literally, it's a kind of, I can't remember the tense, is it present continuous or whatever, I don't know. Literally, it's be being filled. Be being filled. The important thing this morning isn't whether you have or haven't had some experience of the Spirit in the past. The important thing is, is there oil in your lamp now? Are you burning is the Holy Spirit's flame alive? Are you enjoying His presence? Is His power at work enabling you to bless and to build up the body of Christ? I'll come back to this just in a minute when we finish. But first of all, I just want to say a few words about this laying on of hands. You know, if we were drawing up a list of foundational teaching, I doubt that the laying on of hands would make the cut. And yet here it is in this list of elementary teachings that we find in Hebrews chapter 6. And you know what? 
after two years of social distancing, I think it's worth reminding ourselves about why this has an important place in our practice. I think it's something that we often do without necessarily being aware of the significance of what we're doing. Like often when we pray for someone, we lay hands on them as a way of imparting God's blessing on them. You may have noticed that last Sunday when we were praying here for Jess, when we baptized her, people were laying hands on her. Social distancing went out the window. And that was right, and that was proper, because it's just such a natural and such a a human thing to do, but it's also a very spiritual thing to do. It has real spiritual significance. And in the New Testament, we we see the laying on of hands in a number of different contexts. We see it in praying for healing. Uh, We see it in imparting spiritual gifts. We see it in the appointment of of deacons and elders. We see it in sending out workers from the local church. And we see it in the equipping of believers through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So, for example, we often see Jesus laying hands on sick people and, and healing them. That's what we read that frequently in the Gospels. And, and you know what? Jesus tells us to do the same. Mark 16 uh, records him describing some of the supernatural signs that will accompany those who believe, including that they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. These signs are intended to bear witness to the truth of the good news about Jesus. In terms of important spiritual gifts, we see, for example, Paul exhorting Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. Fan into flame the spiritual gift which is in you by the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands also seems to have been practiced when appointing elders and deacons as, as a kind of a way of conferring authority and on people and of commending them to the grace of God for the work to which he has appointed them or called them. Same with sending out people on mission. Acts 13, we read that it tells us that while the leaders of the church at Antioch were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. That's Paul, uh, as he was formerly known. Uh, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. So they are, in a sense, affirming what the Holy Spirit is doing and calling them and calling them to. Finally, in receiving the Spirit, not always, but often, the baptism of the Spirit is associated with the laying on of hands. If you read through the book of Acts, you will find there are five recorded cases of people receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and three out of five of them, it it appears to be associated with the laying on of hands. Me too. I received the baptism through the laying, the baptism of the Spirit through the laying on of hands. But others may have had a different experience. It's not essential. 
So how do you go about receiving? I just want to finish this. How do we go about receiving the Spirit, the baptism in the Spirit? Well, obviously, there are some forms to fill in. And, uh, you know, there's an exam you need to pass. You need to get an interview with, uh, with Caleb, various things like kidding. There's only one thing that you need to do, and that is what? Ask. Ask. The only condition is that you've turned from your sins and received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you want to be closer to God, and you want to know Him better, and you want to be fruitful in serving Him, and you want to receive all that God has for you. And if that's you, then all you need to do is ask. Just I wonder if we could, you guys, the band, could come back up now. Let's just... Let's just finish with looking at uh, Luke 11, chapter, uh, verse 9. This is what Jesus says about this. He says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone. Say that. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Don't, don't get stuck on the bit about being evil. <laughs> Let's just say broken. Uh, listen, as parents, we all try our best for our kids, don't we? We, we, would, we're, we know we're not perfect, we're broken people, but we would do anything for our children. We, we want the best for our children. And, and the point here is, if that's true of us, how much more, how much more is it true of our Father who is in heaven? And you know, he has, he has no favorite. Sometimes people think, oh, this isn't for me. This is for people who are better than me. No, that's so wrong. God has no favorites. In his eyes, each one of us is special. He loves you personally. If you want, ask. He invites you. He longs for you to come and ask. He has promised to give the Holy Spirit to everyone who asks him. So, that's what we're going to do this morning. You know, the, the Father and the Son have poured out the Holy Spirit upon us to empower us to live as his people in this world. Wherever you're at this morning in your experience of the, the Spirit, then the prayer team are ready to, to help you to move onward and upward. But more important, the Holy Spirit is present. God is here and He is so willing to give you what He has promised. I wonder if you would just maybe like to stand and if you guys could just start to gently You know, in normal times, if we were praying for someone to receive the Spirit, we would, with your permission, of course, just gently place our hands on you in an appropriate way. Um, it's not essential, but it's biblical, and, and I think it's really, it can be really helpful. But listen, at the present time, we don't want this to be a, a stumbling block for anyone if you want to be prayed for but still to maintain a bit of distance that's absolutely fine to do that if you would just like to be prayed for where you are 
we suggest that you put a mask on so that the people around you would know that you would like to be prayed for in this way. Once they start praying for you, you can take the mask off if you would like to do that. The prayer team will be over here uh, at any time you can go over and they will be led by you in terms of how you would like to do this in terms of laying hands on or not. To think the key to our being given new life and to living that new life is the Holy Spirit. So let's just let's just ask God, let's let's expect to receive from Him this morning. Father as a church, we long to know your empowering presence. When we gather together, Lord, thank you that you are in our midst, that you are here. Lord, we long to see you manifest your presence in however you choose to do that. Thank you that you come to us. Thank you that you make Jesus known to us. Thank you that you are forming us into a body and empowering us to be witnesses to our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We ask you, we invite you, Lord, to come. Come upon us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.